Welcome to the HMO Success Podcast, episode 51. I can't believe that we are already here. We are nearly 52 episodes in the bag. Woo! What an amazing uh, year we've had recording this podcast. I've absolutely loved every minute of it. So I think this is probably my favorite medium of communication because why? I can have my hair in a mess and nobody cares about it. I don't have to put any makeup on and I don't have all the technical shenanigans of video. I hope you enjoy listening too. And I know I get some great feedback from you, the listener, uh, about what you're looking for in terms of help on your HMO property portfolio and I of course I'm here to help you. Today's episode is a recording of a webinar that I ran during the week and the webinar was titled HMOs, the economic outlook and whether you should be investing right now. So I thought rather than just put it up on YouTube, I thought it would be interesting for you to be able to listen to this as a recording from that webinar because lots of really good topics were raised, uh, both of course by myself, but also by the people who are listening and you might want to listen up for the Q&A at the end. So this week's podcast is HMOs, the economic outlook and whether you should be investing. Welcome to the HMO Success Podcast. My name's Wendy. And this podcast will help you invest in houses of multiple occupation. This evening's webinar is um, a little bit different. From time to time, um, I do uh, updates on the kind of bigger financial picture. And I felt that it was time for me to do a webinar like this this evening, just to give you a bit of a flavour of what we are doing as investors, uh, to give you a take on the market, to give you some ideas about what I see happening in the wider world, and just to plug in some of those pieces of the bigger puzzle. I think at the moment the world is going through unprecedented times, and I think there are some indicators here which we should all be very aware of. And I'm also going to give you some hints and tips about my feeling about investing in property over the next one to three years. And then you might take a lead from that and you might decide that's the way you want to go as well. But of course, as always, these webinars are for education purposes only, so they don't constitute financial advice. You've got to base your decisions on your own financial circumstances and everybody's a different and uh, you know it's partly down to your attitude to taking risk and uh, where you conclude the market is at. So hopefully tonight what I'm going to be able to do is present to you some facts. There's a few graphs in there. I don't want to overwhelm you with graphs. Um, So I've tried to keep a sort of a good balance of materials so that you don't feel overwhelmed by information. And do feel free to ask questions as we go through. So if you want to put your questions in the chat panel, I'll see them as we go through and I will pause every so often and take a question. And then at the end, if we've got some time, I'm very happy to take some questions as well. So let's get going. So let me very quickly get my slides open so you can see them. So tonight's webinar is all about HMOs, the current market, and whether you should invest right now. So what am I going to be covering with you tonight? Well, we're going to talk about some of those economic indicators that are really important when it comes to housing and HMOs, HMOs being a sort of subset of housing. So things like interest rates, what are they doing? Where are they going? What's likely to happen to interest rates over the next year to three years? Are we in a boom time or are we in a bust time? And what's the difference? What about government debt? Because of Brexit and because of COVID, we've got some impacts there too. And particularly the COVID impacts 
have affected government debt. What does that mean for us as investors? What's the likelihood? What's the likely outcome there? And some other general pieces about the economy and the wider economy and some of the things that you might be starting to be aware of as you invest and you might start to be aware of as uh, in your local economy as well things to look for in your locality and one of the things I always emphasize to people who work with me is the the need to really get familiar with where you're investing for you to be the expert in your local area now that can come down to a number of different tools you can download the council's local plan for example you can go for a big walk on a regular basis in your area but knowing your local economy is just as important as knowing the national economy and right now I think lots of people feel confused they don't quite know what's going on they don't know what to believe they don't know who to believe and so tonight what I want to try and do is debunk some of the myths that you might have heard I also want to help you to make some really sound decisions moving forward I've always believed in ethical investing investing with integrity and investing on fundamentals so tonight I want to present to you a view which is not get rich quick um, and it, it might not even be HMOs you might decide you don't want to do HMOs after tonight's webinar but we'll decide that at the end <laughs> so a little bit about me uh, that's by the way that's me on the left in case you're wondering um, that's my husband Andy and I've been investing in property since 1996 so I've been through a number of property cycles I've been through a number of economic cycles so I haven't seen the same as we're seeing right now and this is one of the reasons why I wanted to put on the webinar and share with you some of the things which I think are a little bit different from some of the other economic cycles we've seen in the past and what to be aware of. Now really I started my journey again in about 2013 because although I did it a bit slowly from 1996 to about 2012 uh, I wasn't really very focused and then I read Rich Dad Poor Dad and I'm sure you have also come across Rich Dad Poor Dad or certainly read the book and uh, since 2013 in, in the period of about two and a half years Andy and I created enough money to give up our well-paid jobs. Uh, we've created a multi-million pound property portfolio the majority of which is eight HMOs. Um, so after two and a half years, we became financially free and we could both leave our occupations. Uh, we now have over 150 rooms in the northwest of the UK, which is where we invest, uh, along with a portfolio of commercial and single buy to let properties as well. So we don't just do HMOs, but uh, that has been our focus because that was what got us out of our jobs. And we have helped hundreds of people to develop profitable property portfolios as a result of what we've achieved. And that's one of the, the greatest joys I have is helping other people to get to where we are and in fact do even better than we have done. So this is a handful of some of the properties that I have bought and refurbished and uh, since that time when I first started investing in HMOs we've also set up our own letting agent. Uh, I'm the author of two Amazon best-selling books that you might have seen. Uh, I'm a successful mentor and trainer in the property arena. Um, I've created my own lifestyle and I think for most people that's what they want. Uh, whether they are addicted to property probably like I am, or maybe they're addicted to the outcome. Uh, whatever it is for you that, that floats your boat, that fires you up in the morning, for me, it was creating a lifestyle. So I run my business now about on about four hours a week because I fully systemize my business. So all my properties are managed by my team. And uh, I, that means that I've got time to help other people to do exactly the same.
you might be here because you've listened to my podcast and that's a picture of myself and my business partner Ian who couldn't be here this evening uh, the HMO success podcast it's on all the major platforms so uh, whether you're on Apple or Stitcher or Podbean or any of them um, we are on there so just look for the HMO success podcast and uh, an episode comes out every Friday normally quite early in the morning and we also have our Facebook group so if you're part of Facebook you might be on some other community groups and uh, the ultimate HMO success system is our Facebook group so we advertise uh, everything we're up to on that group and we'd love you to join us if you're not already a member Uh, we'd love to find out what you're up to and how we can help you as well So that's a little bit of background about me, just to tell you who I am, um, why I can perhaps speak with a little bit of authority on this subject matter, and and particularly why I'm passionate about it as well. So when we start to think about the the housing market as as a sort of subset of the economy, what are those key drivers that we're, we're talking about? Now, you might have some others that you would also mention here. And do feel free to put stuff in the chat panel, by the way, if you have any thoughts or questions or you're thinking, well, hang on a minute, when do you miss this? Or, you know, I'd really like to understand what you think about that. Do please feel free to put it in the chat panel um, because I'd love to hear from you this evening as well. So the key drivers, though, are supply and demand. I think that's inevitable that we know that the market very much works on supply and demand, both rental property and sold property or bought and sold property. Interest rates, and I'm going to talk a little bit about interest rates tonight and what's sort of on the horizon for interest rates. Inflation, wages and employment, because of course it's people that rent or buy property. So how people's lives are really does affect the housing market. Housing policy. Now, mostly that's driven by the government, but it's also driven by local authorities as well. So housing policy, legislation to do with housing and uh, to do with uh, being a landlord. And there's, I think there's something like 177 separate pieces of legislation uh, to do with housing. You can't know it all. Um, However, it's good to know what affects you. Uh, So housing policy is a key aspect as well of what's happening and how it affects the market. And then I think finally, sentiment and confidence, because every market, whether it's the stock market, whether it's the crypto market, whatever investment market you're in, it's very much related to the mood of what other people are doing, how other people see what's going on. So again, We'll touch on that a little bit later on, and um, I'd like to know what your feelings are. And maybe once we've gone through tonight's session, you can feed back to me what you're thinking. Now, if we look at the overarching economic ecosystem, as I call it, you'll see that there's a number of different aspects to that. And on the right-hand side, we've got housing and accommodation. But of course, around each of these blobs, these circles, which are infrastructure and business, social and cultural, and recreation and environment, we also have aspects such as population, employment, the banking system, the policy. So housing is is a subset of a wider economic ecosystem, but it, it by no means sits on its own. It very much interreacts with some of these other areas as well. And 
you will hear people talking about certain aspects of uh, that economic ecosystem, but maybe not always making the connections. And what I'd like to do tonight is to help you to make some of the connections between some of these different areas and to think about what's, what's really going on at the moment. Let's start with interest rates. Woohoo! Yes, let's jump straight in to interest rates. Now, at the moment, of course, interest rates are at their lowest historical rate ever. 0.1%. Of course, we don't benefit from the interest rates when it comes to borrowing, do we? Because banks add their own uh, interest on top of that. Otherwise, they wouldn't be making any money. But interbanking uh, lending is at 0.1%. And of course, savings rates are, are horrendous, aren't they? They're even lower than 0.1%. So at the moment, really, interest rates are absolutely flatlining and doing nothing. You might have heard of NERP, <laughs> I love that, um, negative interest rate policy. And this hasn't yet obviously been brought in because otherwise we'd be in minus 0.1 or minus 0.01% if we had negative interest rates. But at the moment, we still have positive interest rates. However, this is being toyed with by the Bank of England setting negative interest rates. And I think they are... They're toying with it because uh, at the moment we can see that uh, borrowing and the flow of money through the system isn't quite where the government want it to be, what we call velocity. Um, now, I'm going to come on to talk about velocity in the housing market in a moment, but at the moment in terms of the wider economy, because of COVID, we simply haven't seen, you know, people haven't been able to go out and shop, for example until uh you know last week people haven't been able to go out and uh, you know book a holiday or they haven't been able to go for a meal so all of this really affects if you like that cycle of money around the system and so the, the, because we're at 0.1% interest rates, the government are toying with the idea of helping to stimulate the economy yet further by, by putting in play negative interest rates. But you see, there's a real downside to this if you're a saver. If you've got money in the bank, you will then have to pay the bank to keep your money in the bank. So they're not going to pay you. You will have to pay them to hold your cash in the bank. And the idea behind this is to help banks to realise that actually they can make money by helping money to flow. So they want banks to lend money more freely, okay? And they want to help businesses and individuals invest. They want them to lend and spend money rather than pay a fee to keep it safe. Now, over the last year since COVID really hit us and we went into lockdown, You'll see later how the money flow has been really squeezed and, and it hasn't been flowing through the economy. And therefore, this is part of the result. What we've got here is a velocity of money which is much lower and slower. And we're going to examine you know, the reasons behind that. But this is worrying for the Bank of England because in order for the economy to grow, we need the pipeline of money to start to pick up and start to flow faster. Now, you might have seen recently that uh, buy-to-let rates have gone up slightly. Uh, the average buy-to-let, uh, the two-year fixed rate is now 3.05%. Oh, what are we going to do? It's 3.05%. Oh, it's terrible. 
Yes, of course I'm being sarcastic. I do remember in the, uh, I think it was the early 1990s when interest rates went to about 15% and I had just bought my very first house and uh, my mortgage was going up and up and up every month because there were no such thing as fixed rates at that point. <laughs> it was horrible. It was a bit scary. And I certainly had less and less to live on every month as a result of it. So actually 3.05% really is still incredibly low, but it's a little bit higher than it was this time last year before the pandemic. And the report on the left there, this is from This Is Money, talks about the, um, the buy-to-let mortgage flood how they're flooding back to the market. But the fact that interest rates have gone up a little bit since uh, 2019. However, there are good signs in the mortgage market. And I think my feeling is this is linked to central banks, particularly the Bank of England, who have given the message to the, the high street banks and the lender banks, we need you to get money out there. We need you to be part of the solution to this lack of money velocity in the system. We need money to flow so we can grow the economy. So interesting, on the right-hand side, and this was just taken from a couple of weeks ago, Kensington mortgages have cut their buy-to-let rates. So we're seeing different mortgage companies react differently. There's more lenders in the market. There's more lenders in the market lending on HMOs, for example. There's more choice out there now. There are more deals out there. 75% uh, loan to value is very standard and common, but there are even some um, options to go to 80% loan to value. Now, that has not been seen for 15, 16 months. So it's actually a really, really good time to borrow cheap money. It's a really good time to do it. But of course, you don't want to be buy, borrowing cheap money unless it is set against an asset that is putting money in your pocket. Because that's the key, isn't it? To making wealth and making money from property is to make sure that the money you're borrowing is cheaper than the income you're getting in terms of rent. And the bigger the gap, the more profit you make and the better off you will be. But I think it's really interesting that we're seeing just a little bit of edging up there on some mortgage products. Um, a survey was done by Paragon just in the last six weeks, uh, a survey of 195 intermediaries. So that's, you know, sort of mortgage brokers. Um, half of them said they were anticipating higher levels of buy-to-let mortgage business over the coming year, up from 41% saying that in quarter four 2020. So if you think about that, that means that, you know, about 100 mortgage brokers said they think that there's going to be higher levels of buy-to-let lending this year, uh, or business rather, mortgage business. And the number of brokers who already saw strong demand for buy-to-let mortgages also rose to 47% in the first quarter of this year from 44% in quarter four. So there's a gradual increase in people buying more property, by, you know, investors coming into the market. And, you know, I think we're starting to see that where there have been perhaps some older time landlords who because of section 24 and other factors have decided to retire or maybe you know sell up and and well they can't go on a they can't go on a yacht just yet can they they can't go on a cruise just yet um but maybe utilize it to retire early 
I think we're also seeing a younger generation coming in and deciding they want to get a foot in the property ladder, particularly as we've seen prices go up. And of course, when prices go up, it, there is a, there's, a, there's a seesaw effect. The, 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 on one side of the seesaw, we get more confidence back to the market and people start to think, oh, yes, I'll, I'll buy a property because it's going to go up in value. But then you also get an element of nervousness as people worry whether it is, in fact, a, a bubble. And uh, I think those are two really valid arguments. Are we in a bubble or is this just a result of being in lockdown and a lack of supply into the market? But what's really interesting is that because of lockdown, there is a huge amount of data that's showing that people are saving and investing more rather than spending because they haven't been able to go on holiday, because many people have not bothered to replace or change their car. Why would you? Because you're not using it. Uh, lots of people have uh, saved money. They've been at home. They haven't had to travel into work. They haven't had to spend money on commuting. So data on households deposit says that between March and November last year, there was an accumulated a stock of over £125 billion pounds in, that was additional to what had been before. So people are starting to realise that, you know, actually being in lockdown and maybe being on furlough and all the other benefits that they may have received has actually given them a little bit more cash. And because there's nowhere to splash the cash, they've decided to stash the cash instead. And so this means that a lot of people have realised, actually, that if you can stash your cash rather than splash the cash, you can make some money from it. And particularly if you can leverage it and if you can learn to use that to invest in property. And interesting that there's other evidence to say that the majority of households don't expect to increase their spending relative to pre-pandemic levels once restrictions are lifted. So again, we have this pressure on the economic system that means that the tap, the water tap of money is not turned on. It's not going to be turned on as fast because the flow is not going to happen. Um, there was a bank survey, a bank stroke Ipsos Mori survey that said that over 10% of our households said they, they expected to spend more once we came out of lockdown. So 10%, but you know, that means 90% are either spending the same or less. And deposits into accounts increased by a record £25.6 billion in May last year, followed by strong, following strong increases in March and April. This is again in 2020. So again, in other words, people haven't got anywhere and last year they didn't have anywhere to put their money. So if you imagine you've saved up, you know, I don't know, a few thousand pounds, maybe more than a few thousand pounds, and it's sitting there in the bank and you're getting 0.1% interest, you'd look somewhere else to put it, wouldn't you? You'd find somewhere else to put it. And there's quite a lot of choice as to where you can put it, but if you're on this webinar tonight, I bet I know where you'd put it. I certainly know where I'm putting it. And this was, um, I can't remember which headline this was, which, which uh, newspaper this was from, but uh, interest rates, Britain's urge to take action to grow their money, move out of cash. And this was uh, Sunday, the February the 7th, 2021. Interest rates have been staggeringly low recently, causing one expert to prompt Britons to take action to ensure they're not losing out. It was probably um, Martin Lewis, maybe from Money Saving Expert. Uh, however, whoever it was, the point is that some of that money is going to be flowing into the housing market as people decide they're either going to increase 
their borrowing or increase the size of their property or move out of London because they want to move into a house that's got a garden. They maybe are realising that uh, they're going to be working from home for a lot longer, so they want a house that's got an office. They want a house that's got some land. There's all sorts of reasons why people have been moving and upping sticks. And of course, with the stamp duty being on hold and uh, frozen Mm -hmm. up to £500,000, that, of course, has stimulated the interest of people to think, well, let's do it now. It's, it's kind of now or never. If we do it now, you know, we'll save money on, on our uh, stamp duty, but also uh, we'll make the most of the money that we've got sitting in the bank account. And I suspect that this is one of the reasons why housing prices have gone up and up and up, coupled with the fact that supply has stagnated. Now, of course, some people have put it into crypto. And I put some of my money into crypto as well. And yes, it has done rather well. But I'm not counting on it to retire, I have to say. <laughs> I mean, I'm not counting on it for anything apart from, you know, it's, it gives me a little bit of a thrill when it goes up and I get a little bit of a spine tingling moment when it goes down and it does go up and down. Crypto is one of those, I'm not sure if I'd even call it an asset, but it is uh, a, a, a form of investing, which is the biggest roller coaster ride I've ever been on. And I live about 20 miles from Alton Towers and I've been on most of the rides in Alton Towers. And crypto is as exciting as any of those big, fast, adventurous rides. So if you want to go on a big ride, put a little bit of money into Bitcoin or into one of the other cryptos, um, cryptocurrencies, the altcoins as they call them, and either see your money whittle its way down to zero, or you never know, by this time tomorrow night, it could be tripled in value. Um, Who knows? Everything is to play for when it comes to crypto. But it is such an uncertain form of investing, and it's so, so volatile. Uh, It's really uh, not something I (laughs) would ever recommend anybody does, apart from to, to have a bit of fun, really, to have a bit of fun and to, to try and do something which you maybe are interested in doing because other people do it, um, to see where it can get you. But I would never invest more than I could afford to lose. But you can see from this chart here, the growth of Bitcoin in terms of its value over the last year. It's, it's been phenomenal. And of course, a lot of people are very excited about crypto and they believe that Bitcoin is going to be the currency of the future. I I personally can't really quite see that happening yet. Uh, It's too early, it's too nascent and it's too volatile and it needs to be uh, a store of value and an exchangeable asset uh, for it to be a currency and therefore really there is no um, cryptocurrency that meets that uh, definition at the moment. Um, But of course we've seen a bubble, we've seen a bit of a bubble in, in, in the crypto market as a result of this cash sloshing around. And it's not, of course, just the UK, but also America and much of the West where governments have have really put a lot of money to keep people afloat, to keep them from uh, destitution and poverty. But that has actually meant that people have got money in their back pocket and they don't know where to put it. I could give them a clue. They could they could they could lend it to me. Anyone who's in that position, (laughs) let's have a call. (laughs) Now, as a result of this background that we see in what's happening in terms of um, interest rates, low interest rates, and people saving money and and money not kind of flowing around the system and the banks starting to say, come on banks, we want you to lend the money. Actually inflation has stayed pretty low, stayed below 2%. It's, it's, It's I think 
running at about uh, 1.3% at the moment. It was quite low um, last month when they released the figures. Um, however, it is going up a little bit. And, you know, I think this is something to watch. Now, inflation does not include house prices. So it includes owner-occupiers' housing costs. Uh, so that's like bills and council tax and so on, but it doesn't actually include the cost of buying a property. So if that was included, we would see those figures be probably more 4 or 5% because we're going to look at uh, house price growth over the last year as well. And you'll see that house price inflation is much, much higher than consumer price inflation. So consumer price inflation is, is, is not doing you know, particularly anything exciting at the moment. It's nothing really to worry about. But I think that as time goes on, um, while we might see some deflation in the market because people will be competing to get their products out to consumers, and because consumers aren't spending as much as they were last year, that is also then affecting people who are maybe making goods or producing services to say, well, we have to reduce our prices to stay attractive. And that, of course, leads to deflation. And that's a good thing. You know, really, deflation is great in an economy when you're a, uh, you know, you're a consumer because it means things get cheaper. But it actually isn't good for the government because when we have deflation, the size of the economy contracts. And the only way we're going to get out of all the debt we've created or the debt the government's created is to increase. They need the... the, they need the um, the, the economy of the country to expand, not contract. So this is a real tightrope that, you know, the country, I mean, the government doesn't really control inflation, um, although what they can do is they can, the, the Bank of England can issue certain um, policies to try and direct what happens next. But inflation is very much controlled by the marketplace. So it's controlled by the, the velocity and the volume of money in the market, but also by what, how the market responds to that. Right, after this, I'm going to take some questions because you're probably thinking, oh, yes, I'd, I'd like to know. This is very interesting and I need to know more about this. <laughs> or you might be half asleep on your sofa by now if you haven't had enough caffeine. Um, so <laughs> if that's you, it's time to wake up. Uh, if that's not you, then have a think about some questions that you might want to ask me. What I'd like to do just is to kind of give you that link between interest rates and inflation, though. And, and this was uh, this blue box at the top of the slide was made by a lady called Silvana Tenreyo, Tenreyo, I don't think I pronounced her name properly. Uh, she's an economist. She's an external member of the Monetary Policy Committee. And what she said was that my overall assessment is that while we can never have complete certainty, negative interest rates should, with high likelihood, boost UK growth and inflation. Now that's a very interesting comment. In other words, what she's saying is the Bank of England leads to increase inflation. And, and what she means by inflation is not just for prices to go up, that's what we tend to see as the outpouring of inflation, that's what the, the result we see is prices going up. What she really is referring to there is velocity the speed in which money is going around the system because the Bank of England will be very concerned if velocity starts to slow down because this, again, contracts the economy and can ultimately lead to a situation as we had in 2008 when we had the great financial crisis. That was all about contraction, 
a speedy contraction and lack of velocity as companies that had over leveraged their debt through mortgage-backed securities went bust. And it was like a house of cards. They went bust, 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 bust. You know, all those dominoes fell down and took with them all that capital, one by one by one, huge amounts of capital. And the problem was that then caused a very fast contraction in the economy. And without stepping in and producing more money and printing more money effectively, uh, everything would have ground to a terrible halt. So we've seen this already in the, the GFC of 2008, and nobody wants that to happen again. So they're going the other way this time in producing money way before it's really needed. Now, what we, what we know is that when prices start to go down, if prices start to go down, let's, let's imagine you for a moment. You're doing your weekly shop, in Sainsbury's or Asda, wherever it is you shop, Waitrose maybe, if you're posh. I'm an Asda girl myself because we've got local Asda, although I do like Sainsbury's actually, they do some good stuff too. Anyhow, wherever you do your local shop, you get your basket of goods, you get your milk and your bread and your cheese and your yogurt and a bit of ham and some fruit and vegetables and whatever else it is. Um, and But you know that prices are going down and you know that week by week things are getting a bit cheaper. And you've noticed this, you've seen prices start to go down a little bit in the shops. You might say to yourself, well, I'm not going to buy any frozen food this week because if I wait till next week, it'll actually be a bit cheaper. So I can actually get some of that luxury ice cream, Ben and Jerry's. Oh, I'm very partial to Ben and Jerry's. Or I could get a really nice bottle of wine or I could buy some other luxury good. But I'll wait till next week because it's going to be 10% cheaper. So you would do that, wouldn't you? If, if something was going to be cheaper next week or the week after, and you could more or less bank on it being cheaper, you wouldn't buy it now. And this is the problem with deflation, is that people stop spending. They hoard money because they say to themselves, well, I'm not going to buy it now. It'll still be here in next, you know, next week or next month, and I'll buy it then. I'll wait before spending money. And this means there's a collapse in demand. Now, this, of course, has a very bad effect on the economy because it means that prices continue to fall even more because producers are worried about not making money. So they reduce their prices just to get their goods into the, the larders, the cupboards, the, the pockets of people. Um, but of course, that can also increase unemployment because those, those companies that are making tin peaches or bread or whatever it is, they have to lay off workers because they're not making enough money to pay those workers. And then, of course, you, it continues into a, a spiral. Now, if deflationary forces are strong enough, cutting the central bank's interest rate to zero can often do the trick, but it might not be enough. And that's where we're at. So reading between the lines of this statement of Silvana Tenreiro, I'm concluding that they are worried that we're going to be coming into a deflationary environment, certainly in terms of consumer prices, and therefore to create extra monetary flow in the system is critical. It's a real imperative for the bank and the government to make this happen. Now, I'm just going to pause for a moment there, have a sip of water and kind of let you cogitate on some of what I've said. Does anybody have any questions about what I've said so far? Are you keeping up? Am I going too fast? Is this a good pace for you? Is it useful? Are you thinking I'm beginning to kind of 
perhaps put some of those connections together or does it all feel a little bit like it's very high economic theory and it doesn't relate to you maybe that's how you feel put your comments in the chat panel I'd love to know what you're thinking Bronwyn thank you very useful thank you good good I'm pleased you're you're with me Bronwyn on that one that's cool By the way, if you miss any of this, I am recording it and you will be able to access it after the webinar. So uh, it is being recorded. It's also going to be on my podcast as well. Sarah, it's a really good question. Uh, how does a booming property market and deflation sit comfortably side by side? That's an excellent question. I'll come to that in a moment. Uh, Cassandra says, I agree. Very useful. Well explained. Thank you. Uh, Caroline, totally useful, great big picture. Okay, excellent, that's really good. Uh, thank you very much for your comments, everybody. Appreciate that very much. It's nice to know that it's hitting home, as it were. So, Sarah, your question, how does a booming property market and deflation sit comfortably side by side? So, when we look at the charts later and we look at what's happening in the housing market, I think you'll, you'll see, you're, you're an advanced investor, you'll understand this, how... The two markets, if you like, the housing market and the general economy, the housing market is a subset of the general economy. So while we're seeing the flow of money in the general economy go down, remember in the general economy, again thinking about, let's say, consumer prices like tin peaches, there's loads of tins of peaches out there to buy. And when there's loads of something, the law of supply and demand is at work and if there's a hundred thousand tins of peaches to buy and there's 10 people who want to buy peaches then the people who become very competitive are the peach manufacturers or the peach canning companies because they're the ones vying for your business but the reverse is true in the housing market and when we have a look in a moment at the facts in the housing market, you'll see that the opposite is true, that we have had a lack of supply in the housing market, but we have had increased supply of money to buy those houses. So, and because it's leveraged debt, and going back to the whole thing about uh, people having money in their bank not doing anything, this is what's fueling the housing boom at the moment. Um... Right, David says, love the phrase, people are stashing rather than splashing the cash. So how can I get my hands on that cash? <laughs> yeah, well, Dave, I have to say, I'll tell you a very, very quick story. Uh, yesterday, um, no, two days ago, in fact, um, I was speaking to a friend of ours who is an investor with us. She's been investing with us for about five years. We've done three property projects with her. She's put in all the cash. We've done the work. We've... Um, revalued and refinanced pulled the money out paid her back but in one of the projects we left in about £35,000 of her cash now she's never wanted the money back we've given her a little bit of an interest payment extra to pay for that money being there but she has just decided she wants to move house and she's found her ideal property and she needs the £35,000 so I was thinking, okay, that's fine there's different ways we can find that money it's not a problem um, but I was I was working this out in my mind as to how we're, where we'd best find it from and you know which were the best ways of, of releasing that money and about an hour later I had a phone call from another friend who I haven't spoken to for about a year whose parents have got some money sitting in a bank account giving them no interest rate and this friend said to me would I like to borrow the money from her parents for the business 
and um, that I could use it in whatever way I wanted to. And of course, we set it up properly and legally and all the rest of it. And I said, yeah, I'd love to. So I, I proposed uh, an offer to them and they the amount they had or have is £35,000. So effectively what's going to happen is I will borrow that money from my friend's parents at a very reasonable interest rate. They get a return on their money. We will use that in our business. We will then release £35,000 for our original friend to give that to her so she can buy her house. Everybody's happy. Now, I didn't set that up. I had no idea it was going to be happening. It was what you could say a coincidence. I actually think it was because it was the right time and that I was in the right place. And I think when you know how to do this and when you know how to do it legally and ethically and correctly, you'll find in this environment people will want to lend you money because if you can do what's right, if you know how to utilise that money so everybody has a win-win, you'll find that people will start to throw money at you because they're getting such a bad return in the bank. Um, Kip very good comment. Professor Richard Werner, banks are in the business of buying promissory notes. Yes, exactly. They want to leverage. The banks are, with central bank help, trying to strengthen their balance sheets. A market correction has been delayed. Really interesting. Um, and I think that this is, of course, why banks constantly think about recapitalization as well, um, because they need to strengthen their balance sheets all the time. On the other hand, if they don't lend, they haven't got any business either. Um, and then David said to then invest in property, of course. Yes, of course, David, why not? And if you can create a win-win whereby you're creating an asset that's bringing you income and you're giving them a return on their money, what's not to like about that? Perfect blend, isn't it? So let's talk about the housing market. So this came out 9th of April. This is the Halifax House Price Index. And there are others. Nationwide does a house price index as well, but I've just looks at the house the Halifax one for now and you can see there that over the last year the annual change of an average property has gone up by six and a half percent six and a half percent so way more than consumer price index inflation and of course a lot of people know this they've looked at house prices and people who've already bought a house or perhaps are already a property investor might look back and think goodness me I've I've made a lot of money just on the back of the, the, all those rising boats in the harbour, they've all gone up and mine has also gone up. And of course, this is one of the benefits of investing in property is that over the long run, your capital grows and it effectively erodes the value of the debt. And of course, this is exactly what the government would love to see across the general economy. They would love to see GDP growing to six and a half percent per annum because the benefit of that is as the economy grows, the level of the debt, effectively, it erodes it away because the, the value of it is, is sort of you know, inflated away. The value of that debt is inflated away. That's where I think we're going to have some problems is in, in growth over the next few years. Um, but I think it's really interesting that we're seeing a lot of house price growth and I think it's set to continue for the rest of this year. I don't think that um, stamp duty is the only reason why it's been stimulated, although I think that's definitely helped to sort of oil the wheels. But I think this is really interesting, that there's less supply of houses, but more demand. Um, so this is from the Royal Institute of Charter Surveyors um, from March um, 2010 right through to March 2020. 
one in 2021, so just last month, average stock of houses for sale per surveyor. So this wasn't based on uh, estate agents. This is based on surveyors, how much, how many houses they had uh, available. Um, so this would be, you know, surveyors who would be going out doing the surveys. And you can see through from um, 2010 right through down to sort of 2016, 2017, there was a fairly good supply of houses. But actually, in the last four years, we've seen house pricing, how, sorry, house supply reduce. And look at the dip in March 2020. Massive numbers reduced, of course, because people were on lockdown and we couldn't do any viewings. And so people weren't putting their houses up for sale. And I think that that trend has somewhat continued. We saw a little bit of a blip towards the end of 2020 when the market opened up again, but it's come back down again. So as we know, this country has a an undersupply of housing. We need more houses. We need to build more houses for people. And the government is simply not building enough houses to house people. And this, I think, is really interesting that over the last 10 years, we've seen the reduction of houses available on the market. So this, of course, is going to be affecting prices. This is, this is another reason why prices are going to be going up. And now this is a really interesting statement from the chief executive of the Halifax. He said this, overall, we expect elevated levels of activity to be maintained in the coming months with consumer confidence spurred on by the successful vaccine rollout and buyer demand still fueled by a desire for larger properties and more outdoor space as work-life priorities have shifted during the pandemic. A shortage of homes for sale will also support prices in the short term as lower availability always favours sellers, becomes a seller's market. However, with the economy yet to feel the full effect of its biggest recession in more than 300 years, we remain cautious about the longer term outlook. Given current levels of uncertainty and the potential for higher unemployment, we still expect house price growth to slow somewhat by the end of the year. So a cautionary note there by the CEO of the Halifax saying that we can see why over the last year we've seen this you know, tremendous growth in house prices fueled by demand and by people really analysing their lives and saying, you know, what? I want to change. I don't want to live in this flat in central London anymore. I want to be out further towards the countryside or I want to be uh, living somewhere where there's maybe a good route into work and I can I can come in by train a couple of days a week, but I don't actually need to commute every single day. So I don't need to live in central London anymore. And that's the behaviour that we're seeing. This is this is you know, behavioural analytics at work. Now, this, I think, is a very interesting chart because it tracks house prices to earnings and it's, it's called a rainbow chart and it goes all the way back to 1983. And it shows average... If you look at the black line in the middle of the rainbow, you'll see the average house price, OK, during that time. Um, and the, 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 if you like, the house price to earnings rainbow shows when prices were relatively inexpensive um, compared to people's earnings. So let's say the, the dark green line on the bottom, that was price to earnings 3.3 to 3.6, whereas the red line right at the top is when prices are much higher relative to earnings. So uh, let's say you know, you're earning, say, 30 grand, but you're, the house you're buying is seven times more than your earnings. So that would be buying a house of, say, 210,000 um, pounds. 
Now, what this shows, and again, there's uh, you know debate about this. It's it's not cut and dried, but this is effectively a model of when you're in a bubble and when you're in a depression. And uh, what the author of this uh, report said was that between about um, uh, uh, 2005 and 2011, um, it was a bubble because you can see where the the black line was going. It was it was high. It was high on that chart. Whereas between 1991 and 1997, it was very much a buyer's market because we were actually in a depression. So. Green means that uh, it's affordable, but you're in a depression. Red means it's unaffordable and you're in a bubble. And of course, according to the, the person who wrote this report, you're either in a bubble or you're in a depression. <laughs> Neither of which is particularly optimistic, is it? Let's face it. Well, can't we just be normal? Can't we just be in the middle of the rainbow? But no, not according to this. Now, obviously, because house prices have gone up significantly over the last year, we're much more in the black line towards the red than we are in the green right now. We're much, much more indicative of a bubble than we are of a depression. Although, this is why I think we are in a very unusual time. Because actually, if you look at the wider economy, unemployment rates, uh, lack of wage growth, and population statistics, we're actually seeing signs of a depression more than we are seeing signs of a bubble which is why what's going on in housing is this is the first time I've ever seen this correlation of factors. It's a most unusual position that we are in. And of course, you may have come on this webinar because you're asking yourself the question, should I invest? Do I invest? Is this a good time to invest or not? And I'm going to help you make that decision as we go through the next few slides. Now, what I would like to highlight to you, though, is as an investor, you don't just look at house prices, of course, you look at rental prices, too. So this chart is from the ONS. It's uh, very recent. I think it came out last um, the end of March, just the, the, the last month, and it shows the annual private rental price growth. Now, it rose by about 1.3% in the 12 months to March 2021. And you can see the different colored lines show different parts of the UK. And what's really interesting is that London uh, seems to have um, gone down a little bit, as we may have heard, but actually the rest of the UK has done pretty well. The rest of the UK has, has increased rental prices, not massively, nothing as much as by what house prices have increased by. But generally what we do see is that over time, rental prices tend to track house prices. So I think in the next year, it's very likely that we will see a growth in rental prices, just as we see potentially a slight flattening off of purchase prices in housing. And it's been really interesting because again, this would reflect this chart here that shows where is the strongest annual rental price growth. It shows it's been in the Southwest and actually also in the East Midlands, funnily enough. And the Northwest and West Midlands follow sort of in third place, joint third place behind um, Southwest and East Midlands. And that is, of course, where we've seen the greatest house price growth as well. So there's obviously massive demand for housing in those areas because of people wanting a change in their environment, a change of circumstances, a change of, in, of scenery where they're living. And we've also seen more people decide to take early retirement. Um, whereas you can see there, London, you know, they haven't, they've had, a, they have still had a little bit of growth, but it's been nothing like um, the rental growth that some of these other areas have had. 
Again, I think supply and demand are at work here. The, uh, the Association of Residential Letting Agents said in their report of this year that the number of new prospective tenants rose for the second month in a row, while the number of properties managed per branch decreased in February. And this led to landlords increasing their rents in February. So here we have evidence that it's already beginning that because of the reduction in the numbers of rental properties available, um, because um, there is a, an increase in the, 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 um, the price of properties by, being bought, this means that landlords are looking and saying, hang on a minute, I'm not quite making the yield that I was, or they're thinking, I've got an opportunity here to increase my rents. And in fact, that's exactly what we did at the beginning of the year. We looked at our rents across our, across our portfolio and we raised them all by 10%. And nobody has moved out as a result <laughs> which I did wonder whether they would but they haven't so I do think as as uh, landlords we can take confidence from this because we know that when house prices go up very often another year later rental prices go up too so I think we're definitely seeing the beginning of a rental price inflationary push going on in the lettings market but it's not all good news, I'm afraid. Not all good news, because there are some other aspects that we need to be aware of. One of them is unemployment. Now, I'm just going to pause for a moment there, because Cassandra um, just has uh, messaged me. Would I wait till the end of the year to buy? I'll come on to that, Cassandra. Um, and she's referenced the statement from the CEO of Halifax. Okay, so that's a really good point, and I'll, I'll come on to that. Um, so unemployment is a, is a factor. It's, uh, it's one factor in the overall economy. What we know is when we see higher rates of unemployment, we see greater demand on the rental property sector. People tend to lose their houses or they decide to give them up voluntarily. And at the moment, there is a moratorium on um, house repossessions. Um, lenders are being asked to be incredibly cautious when it comes to repossessing properties. Uh, I've seen a few um, commercial repossessions. In fact, I was phoned up by an agent today saying a property that we looked at a few months ago has just been uh, has gone into administration and would we be interested in um, re-offering because our initial offer was rejected. Um, so I might go back and have a look at that one. But in the residential market, because the, the lenders obviously are getting people out of their homes, they don't want to have happen what happened in 1991, 92, and also in the 2000s, and also in 2007, 2008. And the government are very keen to protect people who are living in rented accommodation. But what we do see is unemployment, um, unemployment rates actually are not as high in a percentage term as we've seen in the past. So if you go back to the likes of 1980 or 1990, unemployment was much, much higher as a percentage than it is now. But the problem is, while the percentage of people who are economically active uh, is not as high as it used to be, the actual numbers of people who are economically active have dropped. So what this means is that we actually still have a worrying number of people who are not working. It's about 25% of the population that are not, they're not economically active and they are uh, unemployed. Um, and you can see this from these charts here. And, and really the one I want to most um, kind of highlight to you is the one on the right, which is economic inactivity. And you can see how um, 
uh, actually that that line has dropped but the reason it has dropped is because a lot of those people are doing uh, they've either uh, they're, they're either retired or they are doing part-time jobs so they've come out of the being the economically inactive but actually they aren't as they aren't earning as much money as they used to earn when they were maybe in full-time employment and they don't want to be classed as unemployed so we're still not sure what the impact is going to be of people coming out of furlough we still don't know what's going to happen when furlough ends in september and how that's going to affect the economy obviously the government have got the rhetoric that the the, the government that the country is going to bounce back um i'm not quite convinced that's actually going to happen i think we're going to see a lot more demand for rental property though i think i'm certain of that and I think we're going to see a lot more people begin to realise that they have to be more mobile for work. And if they're going to do a couple of jobs, which is very, very likely, they're going to have to be able to be flexible. Now, what kind of accommodation might they need where they have flexibility, where they have cheap rents, where it's all inclusive? Uh, I wonder. Oh, yes. HMOs. <laughs> Um, now, another factor that affects HMOs and has always affected HMOs is immigration. Now, before COVID and in fact, before Brexit, the, the rates of uh, immigration were fairly steady in the UK. And every single year we have more net migration. We have more people coming into the country than we had people leave the country. And this was good for our population. It was good for our working population. But last year, the number of non-UK nationals from the EU, this was, decreased by a record 364,000 people. So this, and, and 65,000 fewer people came from outside of the EU into the UK. This has a very big impact on our economy because a lot of those people who come to the UK work in the gig economy, they work in low-paid, low-skilled jobs, or they work because they know that they can earn a better, um, you know, price per hour than they can if they were at their, in their own home country. And many of them might stay for a few years and then they go back. And we've seen over the last six or seven years, a lot of uh, those migrants work very, very hard and they like to live in HMOs because it's all inclusive and they don't need to have a mortgage. They don't need to pass any tests. Um, yes, they have to pass a credit check, but to a certain degree, that's a little bit null and void because you often don't have any records for them. So there's other things you can do, like take a guarantor or take a bigger deposit. You know, there's things you can do to offset that risk. But generally, we found those tenants to be very hardworking. They want a peaceful life and they just want to live somewhere that's well managed and clean and tidy so they can do what they're here to do. But those numbers have dropped. Now, at the moment, we only have on this slide uh, up to 2019. We haven't got any further data. It, it's slowly coming out but i think we're going to see later this year those it's clearly because of travel and the restrictions on travel who is going to be coming to the uk when they have to then have a 14-day quarantine it's it's not going to work is it um david says does it concern you that high unemployment is so high in young people who are the more likely to rent rooms yes it does concern me david now, let's see what the what the government are doing, of course, is they've got their new scheme for young people, the quick start, quick start scheme. No, sorry, kickstart, I think it's called, isn't it? Kickstart scheme. I think quick start's something else. <laughs> it's another government program. And I don't know if you've heard the phrase, there's nothing 
more permanent than a temporary government programme. So let's see what happens with the Kickstart scheme. But they, the aim of that is to get those young people who could be terminally unemployed back into the economy. And I think that what we're going to start to see is probably more of the charitable sector looking after that group of young people. Um, a couple of my colleagues have been renting out their properties to charities, charities that work in the housing sector. You know, they are registered providers and they are renting their whole HMO out to a, a charity. And some of those charities are working directly with young people. So I think this is where, as HMO landlords, we perhaps need to broaden our horizons and think of producing a home with great facilities, possibly with en-suites, but not just targeted at the young professional market anymore. What we were doing five or six years ago is not going to be the same as to what we're going to be doing over the next five or six years. I suspect what the next five or six years is going to look like is going to be a lot more flexibility, a lot more partnership working, a lot more provision into some of those marginalised and charitable sectors that maybe in the past we haven't wanted to work in. Partly, of course, because we haven't had mortgages that would support us as landlords renting into that sector. But that's changing too. The mortgage market is becoming more flexible as well. So there's mortgages now that mean that you can rent to um, people who are unemployed and not and still get really good rates still get still get very good reasonable commercial lending rates so the mortgage market has been one of the factors that's that's really kind of stuffed people up from working in those sectors and that's changing so i'm pretty confident that it will change as to who we start to rent to as well Something else just to be aware of is demographics, population demographics. Now, if we look back, and you see some people have said to me, but Wendy, COVID is just the same as the war. We had the Second World War and we had massive debt to GDP and we had just as many problems then as we have now. Well, I'd like to share with you why I think it is actually very different it's not the same as post-war at all. And one of the reasons is demographics. You see, in the 1950s, so sort of five, six years after the Second World War finished, you can see that, well, there was a, ba there was a baby boom um, and there, was a, there were a lot of people between the ages of, I mean, you can see at the bottom of the chart there, the sort of zero to fives. There <laughs> was a massive big spike in zeros to fives. But equally, the, we, had, we had a lot of 30-year-olds and we had a lot of people in the working population. Whereas from the age of 60 onwards, there were fewer people in that population. Whereas in 2018, you can see the bulge has moved up. In other words, all those people who in the 1950s, so... 70 years prior um, were you know 10 year olds or, or, or 20 year olds they're now much much older they, they they've moved on they're much much older so the working population is older and we don't have a spike in babies we don't have that baby boom going on so what this means is that actually our population is getting smaller by age uh, if that makes sense in other words the younger you are the fewer people there are. The older you are, the more of you there are. In fact, I think the, the average age in the UK is about 55 years old. So put like that, you can realise that, you know, at 55, people can start to take a lump sum from their pension. 
Uh, some people would be able to retire at 55. You're going to have a lot of people dropping out of the working population. And we're not seeing the young people, as we've just seen from that chart before, finding the jobs, getting the work, being employed. So where are the tax receipts going to come from? Who's going to be paying the tax that we need to collect to pay back the debt from coronavirus? That's the question. Now, I want to move on to GDP, gross domestic product. And this is, of course, a very important area that the, the BBC do report on, I don't know, once every quarter. And they don't give it really much shrift, which I think is a shame because this is really important for us as, as uh, property people to understand. Now, GDP is really, if you like, the turnover of the country. It's kind of all our goods and services. It's all the spending that we do. It's kind of all the money that goes round and round in the system. Um, that's a simplistic way of putting it. But basically, it, it, it really shows how sort of profitable and how productive we are as a country. And you can see this chart goes all the way back to January 07. And there was obviously a dip in GDP January um, 08, January 09, because of the global financial crisis, where everything contracted, which I mentioned earlier. But then we kind of, you know, got back, didn't we? Now, of course, interest rates were very low. So borrowing was still very, very cheap at this point. Interest rates pre-2008 had been about 5%. They dropped down to about 2% after the GDP, uh, after the GFC, I should say, global financial crash, and stayed very, very low since then. So that's allowed people to borrow money, to invest, to grow. And we can see that chart steadily going up and up and up until January 2020. And of course, it was March 2020 when we went into lockdown and boom, we went down to, uh, I mean, there it looks like from the chart, uh, we lost about 20% of GDP in about a month. Absolute shock through the country. And if you look back at charts of the stock market, you'll see there was an equivalent fall in the price of stocks and the value of stocks. Now, at that point, what the Bank of England did was they printed a lot of money and they flooded the markets with more money because they knew they had to keep the market stable. They had to keep the velocity of money flowing. You know, they had to keep the tap on because we didn't want to have happen last year what happened in 2008 and of course the problem is that that has blossomed into a huge debt that we now carry with us uh, we now have i think it's something like 300 trillion pounds of government debt and we've taken on another i think 20 billion pounds since uh, month, I think month on month. I've got the figures later anyway. I'll show you the figures later. It's so enormous. <laughs> you can't almost... Ah, I can't even think about it. It's such a big, 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 massive figure. It's almost impossible to know how many zeros you'd have to write on your piece of paper if you were writing it out. But the headline, you know, trying to stick to the headline, make it easy to understand, is that you can see that we had a real big dip in GDP, but it's come back but it is nowhere near what it was this time last year. In fact, that chart, actually, if you were to look what we are doing right now, as of March 2021, we are at the same GDP levels as March 2014. So we're effectively six years behind. All that growth that we experienced for six years has been wiped out. So think back to what you were doing in 2014, what your 
financial position was, what your job was, how old your kids were, what you were doing during that year, where you were in your understanding, your knowledge, your investing. Uh, you might have been in a better place than you are today. Maybe, maybe things were better in 2014 for you than they are today. But I think for a lot of people, they would look back and go, oh, no, I don't want to go back to 2014. You know, it wasn't terrible, but I'm, I'm much better off now than I was then. I'm, I'm more advanced than I was then. I know more now than I did then. Um, I'm, I've got more things than I did then. I've had more holidays I did now than I did then. I think we'd all say that actually in seven years, we've probably all done okay with the exception, I'm sure there's the odd exception of, you know, things have happened or difficult things that have happened to people. But you can see that seven years difference is really massive, which this chart doesn't, you know, it's not easy to see that. So in other words, the point is that for us to get out of debt, in our, in us to, for us to be able to, if you like, inflate our way out of that debt, we've got to grow quite significantly every year. And we need to grow by at least, in, in the next year, by at least another 5 or 6% just to reach where we were this time last year. And given that it's been very difficult to achieve 2 or 3% GDP every year for the last 10 years, how likely is it that we are going to reach another 5 or 6% in the next year is very unlikely, which in my mind means that we are not going to get back to pre-COVID levels of GDP for probably another five or six years. It's going to take us that length of time before we get back to that level of productivity. And in fact, Dan Hansen, who's a senior UK economist, said exactly the same. We now expect the economy to contract by 9.5% in 2020, down from our previous forecast for a slump of 7%. We also see a more modest rebound in activity in 2021, with the economy growing 6.5%. That compares with our earlier estimate of 9%. So... What's happening is that the economy is shrinking. It has shrunk because of COVID. We're seeing the, the impacts of inflation. We're seeing the impacts of um, the, on, uh, because of the population as well and because of people not being able to travel. Now, I think the good news is when travel corridors start to open up again and when there is more confidence about the vaccine programme and we have whether we get vaccine passports or not, I don't know. But I think when we have some way of um, making sure that people are safe when they travel, I think it's very likely that, again, we will open our doors and we will see people wanting to migrate into the UK again. That will be enormously helpful. Um, and in fact, that was always one of my big issues with Brexit was that we were you know, potentially closing the doors on migration, which is something we, we really desperately need in this country because we're not having enough babies. Now, this chart, again, apologies for the number of charts tonight, but I hope it helps to put things in perspective for you. Um, this chart shows how much borrowing we have accumulated, okay? And I wanted to show this because it's just like a slide, isn't it? You know, it's like a child's slide. If you stop, if you, if you, if you took, put a child on the top, they would slip right down to the bottom. That's how steep that slope is. Um, this is cumulative borrowing from April last year to February 2021. They're £300 billion is how much has been borrowed cumulatively. And it it's, works out about 17 or £18 billion per month 
it's a huge amount of money that every month we're borrowing and it's accumulating, it's accumulating every month. A bit like if you went to the bank every month and took out a loan of five grand and then next month you did the same and the next month you did the same. At the end of the year, you'd have 60 grand in extra debt that you didn't have at the beginning of the year. And it, you know, five grand a month doesn't sound massive, but over a year it's huge. And that's what we've done in the UK. Over the whole 12 months, we've accumulated massive amounts of debt. And this is why growth is vital for us to get ourselves out of the debt. And debt relative to GDP, you can see here, you know, we're, we're basically at 100%. Our debt now is equivalent to our gross domestic product. And that is really quite worrying. It's, it means we're, it's a bit like being 100% loan to value on a mortgage. If you, if you had a house that you bought for £130,000 and you had a mortgage of £130,000, you would be 100% to GDP kind of thing. It's the same kind of thing. Your debt to GDP would be 100%. And that's where we are as a country. And that's why the debt is, is quite something that worries me personally. Now, this is why I think it's a little bit different from the war, because we were actually... This is, this is maybe comforting, but we were in an equally bad position after the Second World War. We, had, uh, we were way in debt after the Second World War because of the, the cost of running the war. We borrowed a lot of money from America and we slowly paid it back. And I think by the early 1960s or mid-1960s, we'd paid back a lot of that, that war debt. But that was to, through, through other reasons, which I'm going to come to. So one question that I sometimes get asked is why... If, if printing money leads to inflation, why do we do it? Well, we've seen tonight that one of the reasons why we, we need some inflation is to get rid of the debt. By, by printing money, by expanding the economy, it inflates away debt. And we need to do that because we're in such a lot of debt at the moment. And tax receipts, because of unemployment, are not going to be enough to do it. No matter what the government rhetoric says, it's never going to be enough to pay back the amount of money they borrowed for COVID. We also need money to flow through the system because it's when money flows that we do not have deflation. Um, and that's, you know, one of the worries of the government. So we need we need money to be flowing. So uh, by printing money, we keep cash flowing. We keep the economy going. We pay people. Uh, we keep banks afloat. Businesses stay afloat. It creates more jobs if there's an illusion of more money in the economy. It's to invest, it's to keep share prices high, and I can't go into the reasons why that's important tonight, but it's to do with pensions. Vital that we keep share prices high, otherwise we can't pay all those pensioners who are about to retire. And it helps us to create more things. The danger is, the danger is, and Sarah's just written this in the chat panel, but for how long? It's a really good question. The danger is that it becomes hyperinflation, and then it gets out of control, and then, Lots of other problems happen. What other results might there be? Okay, so there's a liquidity trap. So that what that means is where people don't want to spend the money that they have. And I think we've seen some of that over COVID, that people have money, they don't want to spend it. They, we, we then have a credit crunch because banks don't want to lend, nobody can borrow. Are we in a bubble? Are we in a housing bubble is a, is a good question because we've seen uh, house prices go up and up and up and we haven't seen... Wages go up and up and up. Will we see deflation and then inflation? Obviously, in the housing market, we've just seen inflation. The pound might drop. 
in terms of its value. So what we need now is to emphasise productivity. As a, as a nation, as a country, we need to be working hard. We need to get people back into employment. We need to increase GDP. And actually, a big thrust in this is manufacturing. If we could start to manufacture stuff, it would really get us out of a big, big hole. Japan is a case in point here. Um, Japan had what was called the 10 lost years. And of course, this was pre-COVID. This was like the early 1990s. And exactly the same thing happened when um, they, had, they had deflation and they then had stagnation because they had low growth, low inflation. And the problem was that um, they're, they're, um, they had an aging population as well. Just like we've got today, they had an aging population. And this meant that their productivity figures started to decline. The difference, though, with Japan is I bet if you look around you right now, there is something in your kitchen or in your car or in your sitting room that is made in Japan or has been designed in Japan and has been shipped to the UK because Japan is still a net exporter. In other words, they have a massive manufacturing output. They still make huge amounts of goods that we buy in the West and, of course, all around the world. And we, in the UK, are a net importer. So we are very, very dependent on buying stuff from across the world, whereas Japan sell, sold stuff. And because people uh, wanted to have you know, wanted to buy stuff from Japan, they had to buy the yen. So the yen stayed up at a good price. And of course, this actually did help their economy long term. The point, though, about Japan is we could become a bit like Japan if we're not careful, because we have so much debt, we have an older population, and we get into a kind of stagnating economy. And if we look at post-war post-Second World War versus post-Covid, the similarities and the differences. Well, the difference is that post-war, unemployment was about 2% uh, from about 1948. Now, admittedly, a lot of that would have been male unemployment because women weren't counted in the figures. <laughs> Don't get me started on that one. <laughs> because women were supposed to be at home bringing up the children, of course, and doing housewifely things. <laughs> I wonder how they felt about that. Anyway, that's the official figures. It was only 2% unemployment. Whereas now we know we've got rising rates of unemployment. Now that women are counted in the figures um, too, yes, they do count. Uh, certainly it's slightly higher. That's about, as we say, about 4.5%. But that doesn't count for some people who are working much fewer hours uh, as a result. There was a baby boom in the post-war but, you know, I've seen lots of reports that say that's not happening with COVID. People are not having babies. And psychologically, maybe there's a reason, you know, which we can all understand. Would you want to have a baby in such uncertain times? Whereas I think the, there was a lot of optimism after the Second World War. There was a lot of growth. There was a lot of redevelopment. There was a lot of hope. And so, you know, the inevitable happened and babies were born. There was a large period of sustained economic growth. Now, we might see that. I don't say that we will. I don't say that we won't. That, that we will, that's yet to be decided. There was very full unemployment until the late 1970s. So there was you know, a lot of many years when unemployment was uh, very low and employment was high. Incomes also rose. We, we had a general period of inflation, but incomes were also rising. 
therefore taxes rose as well and we had a falling debt to GDP ratio because at that point the government's big commitment was to pay off the war debt and not increase debt. So it didn't increase debt, or well, it did actually a little bit in the early 1940s because we started the, um, the NHS and various other um, uh, social support schemes. But, but generally, the, the, the thrust in those years was really to pay down the debt. And there was a positive inflation rate, which helped erode the real value of debt. Now, post-COVID, GDP is probably going to stay low. It's going to be lower than it was last year. And as I say, probably back to 2014. You know, it's going to take a while before GDP goes up. And as, as our growth gets going, that's a really good thing because it can erode the COVID debt. But we still have a lot of people who are on furlough or potentially going to be made unemployed. We also see the median age rising. So unlike post-war when I think the average age in the UK was something like 30 the average age now is 55 so how many people are really going to be going back to work and being the productive workforce that we need fewer babies are being born incomes are generally stagnating now tax is a big one we haven't got time to go into that today but we all know there are threats to uh, tax and uh, for example with um, capital gains tax, some changes being mooted there. We've, we've already seen taxes to the income from uh, property, if you're a property investor. So tax is one to keep an eye on. And rising debt to GDP ratio, I think is gonna carry on for a while. And we may see greater inflation as we've seen from houses already. And of course, as Sarah says, the pill wasn't available then either. So <laughs> yes, there were probably quite a lot of sort of accidental births taking place. But of course, long term, none of them were accidents. Of course, they were all designed to help us become more productive. <laughs> we were productive in many different ways, weren't we, in those, those years? So the question is, I've thrown a huge amount of data at you tonight. I've opened a whole load of cans of worms and I've probably made you think hard and long about what this all means. So what does this mean for HMOs? You know, basically, I love HMOs. I'm really into HMOs. I really believe in HMOs. But why do I still believe HMOs will work? Okay, well, I'll give you my reasons. Number one, people still need somewhere to live. Shelter is a basic human need. And in times of depression or economic inactivity, there's an even greater need for property that can house people that is cheap, that is flexible, that is all inclusive. And I absolutely know that HMOs fulfill that gap like no other kind of housing does. When there's a loss of jobs and when there's um, stability of income, there's a greater rental sector. So I, I think that what this means is that, um, actually, I think I meant instability of income. Sorry, not stability, I meant instability of income. People realize they've got to make an income, they've got to make money. So this means that they have to travel, they have to find somewhere where they can find a job to earn some money. And of course, this leads to a greater rental sector. And we've already seen how uh, rental rates, rental values are rising. Um, and that's because people are starting to move. There's, there's more movement around the UK. Banks need to lend money to survive. And, and you know, it's really interesting to me how we're, we're seeing more money coming onto the market. Now that COVID is kind of, you know, opening up, we've got this roadmap to opening up. Banks now want to lend money. 
So why shouldn't you be one of those people that they lend money to? I believe that HMOs are a great form of hedge against devaluation. In other words, if the pound does get devalued, ultimately, you've always got an asset. You've always got something that's going to be valuable. Bricks and mortar is always valuable. It's always going to be an asset that's going to give you income. And, you know, I've seen people do all sorts of things over code with their HMOs. I've seen them turn them into LHA uh, HMOs. I've seen them turn them into great study room HMOs. Uh, I've seen the student market turn them into professional HMOs. I've seen people be really flexible. And I think as investors, we need to adopt that mindset that it's not fixed, that we have a property and it can, if you like, morph into lots of different forms. HMOs are good because you maintain cash flow by having multiple tenants. And, you know, house prices, they will sink and they will rise. What do I think will happen this year? I think we'll see prices flattening off towards the end of the year. But going back to Caroline's question, do you know, I wouldn't wait. We're buying two properties at the moment. Sorry, Cassandra, it was who asked that. Um, because I believe that there is never a better time than now. Because when you look back in two or three years time, you never say, oh, do you know what? I wish I had waited for six months to buy that property. I wish I hadn't bought at that point. Because there's never a perfect time to buy. Never. There's never a perfect time in your life to buy. There's never a perfect time in the economy to buy. But the great thing about housing is whether it's a boom or whether it's a bust, over enough time, you'll still make money. So I would right now still be looking. We are still looking for deals. Over the next few weeks, we're trying to buy two or three extra properties as well because we actually feel that we can still find properties even now at good deals, at good rates. And I'm very, very confident about the long-term future of the UK rental market and the UK property market. Um, so yeah, be creative, find ways to work with, uh, with, with sellers. Um, and I think that we might see some sellers becoming a bit more motivated to sell fast as well. So you know some of those fundamentals here. Low cost, easily affordable housing, accessible housing, all inclusive, which makes it affordable. Um, you can be flexible with your tenant's credit status. You could decide to take a guarantor or a slightly bigger deposit if, for example, they don't pass the, uh, the credit checks that you might be doing. You're de-risking your investment by having multiple income streams. You don't have to have a six-month AST. You can offer a three-month AST. You could even do a sort of form of serviced accommodation if you wanted to. HMOs are leverageable, so it means you can benefit from the low interest rate inflation we're in at the moment. And you can use them in various tenant markets. I very much believe in bricks and mortar. Having been investing for 25 years, property has never let me down. I've had a couple of properties that didn't quite work and I've sold them. I had one property where I lost money. But apart from that, property has always been my faithful friend. And I believe that HMOs are just still one of the best types of property to be in, in in this marketplace. But yes, you need confidence and yes, it's good to be educated and have the knowledge to be able to make that happen. And eventually, what you'll probably see is that your HMO will go from where it was in, say, the 1950s, right up to where it is now. And in five years time, you'll be looking back and going, do you know what, that Wendy Whitaker Large, I didn't really understand everything she said. Some of it went over my head, but boy, oh boy, am I glad that she helped me to do one thing, which is to buy a property and make some money. And this is just another quick chart that shows you how house prices 
versus monetary supply are very closely linked. And we've seen huge amounts of spending and borrowing. We've seen 300 billion be released. The only way, guys and gals, is up. And that's why I love property, because over time, up is the only direction it goes in. So what? The question is, so what? What are you going to do now? Do you feel more confident about investing in property? Do you feel more confused about investing in property? Maybe you think, oh, I still am not quite sure what I should be doing next. Well, I've got a couple of thoughts for you. Number one, if you would like to talk through your options, I offer 30 minute free calls, free consultation calls to people who want to talk through their options with HMO and see whether HMOs are the right asset class for you to be investing in. And I'd be very happy if you want to, um, you'll, you'll get a recording, you'll get a link to the recording and in the link to the recording on the webinar, I'll send you a link where if you want to book a half an hour free call, you can do that on the link after the, uh, after the recording has been sent out. Um, I would also say to you that if you don't have assets, you will forever be time poor because you're always having to swap your time for money. You can't outsource jobs because you have to do them all because you haven't got enough money to pay someone to do them. You have a lack of flexibility. You can't choose your lifestyle and you're dependent on job income. So whether it's HMOs or whether it's another form of property you decide to invest in, please don't waste this opportunity. This could be one of the greatest opportunities that any of us have had, even though it looks difficult and heavy and like this guy is holding all his problems in his hand and it seems challenging. Believe you me, in another few years, you'll be so glad that you took the leap and did it. So what else can you do? Well, recognize that housing is essential. It has value over and above the monetary value. Keep liquidity. So liquidity is key. Make sure you've got enough money every month coming in from your rents to pay for your outgoings. Servicing your debt is critical. I would suggest that you want to start to pay off bad debt or expensive debt, but incur good debt, low interest debt, which is secured against assets. And look at your whole money you know, your whole kind of money economy, your personal money economy. Have you got money that's in low interest accounts that isn't giving you any return that you can move into another asset class and make some money from? And don't have too much cash in any one bank. Uh, we know that's not a good idea either. When, when you know, economies are going through struggling times, they can do crazy things. So make sure that you stick below the £80,000 limit to make sure that you're, uh, you've got that insurance in your personal bank accounts and in your business bank accounts. Now, just as a quick offer for you, if you're interested in learning a bit more, um, my book, Extraordinary Profits from Ordinary Properties, goes into a little bit more depth about the background on the housing market, where we've been, how we got here. And if you want to create income from HMOs, um, it goes into the insight on the current market. I talk about my five-step system so that you can create wealth from HMOs with just five properties. Um, Inside, I explain how you can control property with little or no money down, and it helps you to create an investing template to rinse and repeat for fast cash flow using your own or other people's money. So if you want to learn how to stay ahead of the curve by learning about what's going on in the market, and I look at emerging trends as well towards the end of the book, um, this book is a special offer for you tonight. <laughs>
Yes, I'm going to give you an offer. So that's all it is tonight, guys, is a special offer to get the book. The website is www.epfop.co.uk. Extraordinary Profits from Ordinary Properties. That's what it stands for, epfop.co.uk. Now, on um, Amazon, this book sells for 11 99 but you can get it if you just pay £3.80 for postage and packing. That just covers my cost for um, posting it out to you. So if you want to know more how you can, I haven't talked about the five-step system tonight, but if you want to know how you can also create a portfolio of high cash flowing properties and make extraordinary profits from ordinary properties, which are HMOs, um, I'd love you to be able to, to get my book and uh, it's just £3.80 and I will put the, um, I'll just put it in the chat panel as well if you haven't already got it. So you can click through and, and order that book straight away. So that's me done. I think just about hit the deadline, 8.30, which is great. So thank you very much indeed, everybody, for being here this evening. Got some time to take some questions. If anybody would like to take some questions or would like to um, you know, comment or ask any further about anything that, uh, that I've talked about tonight. Um, so... I think it was Sarah was it said happy to continue to buy the tricky bit is finding deals that stack I think that will change as we start to see rents go up because you'll suddenly find that actually you can stack the deals when you get higher rents <laughs> at the moment they probably don't stack too much because we're still basing on old rents aren't we pre-covid rents but once we see rents go up you'll go hey this is a great deal it really stacks So, are there any further questions? Um, Sarah says, definitely recommend the book. Great value. Thank you very much, Sarah. Um, LHA rates may be slower to rise. They might well be. I know in certain areas they've actually increased LHA rates over COVID because they were very concerned about the homelessness levels. I think local authorities have been given some discretion about what they pay for LHA rates. Um, so yeah, if you're in the marketplace, then you do need to you do need to understand what LHA rates are doing, and I think developing relationships and partnerships with other organisations is also incredibly helpful because um, they can rent your HMO, you know, as as a one. Uh, almost on, on a company lease and then they would deal with the LHIA side of things. Lavinia, I do think that buying an, a, um, at auction to convert to an HMO can be a great strategy. I've bought a number of properties at auction and again as long as you do your due diligence and you, you read the legal pack thoroughly, in fact I suggest you get your solicitor to look at the legal pack beforehand and just give you a really good detailed feedback on that, there's no reason why buying at auction can't work can be some great deals that you can find. Um, I have seen prices go up and up and up at auction though in the last year. So although I keep in touch with what happens on auction, I must admit at the moment I'm a little bit cautious about auction. Having said that, my business partner Ian bought a cracking property after an auction last month. Um, it didn't sell at auction, he bought it afterwards for £30,000 less than the guide price. So it's all about being in there, being prepared to make offers, not getting too attached to your offers and seeing what happens. Sowing the seed, as they say. Uh, Kip says, do I think that the amount of non-performing loans will increase or will there be a global debt jubilee? That's a great question, Kip, I love it. Well, I think if we look at the, um, the global economy, um, one, of the, one of the big 
questions that I have in mind is how how long can we continue to fund um, these uh, kind of ghost companies? I mean, Tesla, for example, Tesla hasn't made a profit for the last five years, and yet its value has gone up 10 times during COVID. Um, obviously, um, you know, Elon Musk is very well known. He's, he's, he's got a very big reputation um, and he's doing some amazing things in the space race. But Tesla as a company is not profitable at all. In fact, it's lost money. And yet the value of the stock has grown incrementally over or exponentially over COVID. And I think we're seeing that all over the, all over the world, that people have got cash and they want to put it somewhere. And in a way, these are, um, you know, kind of almost ninja type uh, situations, I think, where we're seeing um, the, the value of stocks, the value of companies go up and up and up and up, and yet there's no inherent value in them. They're not giving any dividends back to their, uh, their, their, their stakeholders, their shareholders. So they're not really worth anything. They haven't, they're not making profit. They're not based on business fundamentals. Um, so I think, um, non-performing loans, um, it's going to be very interesting to see whether they will be, if you like, reissued, recapitalized, um, or whether, it, you know, with, with longer term lower interest rates, um, that will make them more affordable for countries, in which case then we don't need to have a global debt jubilee. Because effectively, if, if all our debt is going to be spread much, 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 much further into the future at lower interest rates then it becomes a much more affordable prospect because then of course effectively inflation will will erode that debt uh, i think it's a really good question kit what do you think i'd like to know what your view is of that it ended rather abruptly there didn't it I hope you enjoyed the recording of that webinar and if you are not already on my email list please do get in touch with me so that I can send you notifications of when I run these online classes to help educate you about what's happening in the market and also if I can help you on your journey to creating a profitable HMO portfolio I'd love you to get in touch. I offer free 30-minute consultation calls where I can problem solve for you the questions, the queries, the issues, the challenges that you're having and also just tell you a little bit more about what I do and how I can potentially help you. There's no hard selling. I'm here to serve and to help you. So please do get in touch. My email address is wendy at hmosuccess.co.uk. That's wendy at hmosuccess.co.uk. I personally answer all the emails that come into my inbox and I would love to hear from you. If you've got queries or questions, feedback for me or anything else that I can help you with to do with HMOs. Thank you for listening to the HMO Success Podcast. If you'd like to know more about how you can create a profitable HMO business, please visit our website, hmosuccess.co.uk, to find out more. We have plenty of free tools and information for you there, and also on our Facebook group, The Ultimate HMO Success System. We look forward to connecting with you very soon. Thanks for listening.